Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Joining us now to talk World Cup football and the A-League is the voice of uh, the World Cup pretty much for everyone listening on SEN and SENZ. Jordan Canelis, g'day mate, how are you? Good, Ricardo. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. How's the sleeping patterns? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a bit. It's it's completely flipped. It's nocturnal. So I'm uh, I'm I'm up for another couple of hours, and then I'm going to bed at midday Melbourne time, and I'll sleep the next eight hours. And not seeing much sunlight at the moment, but only one more week to go. Yeah, all right. Just just the one week, mate. I did this once. I did the 2006 World Cup. I uh, couldn't afford to go to Germany, but didn't want to miss a game, and I had heaps of leave owing, so I took a month off and just lived on German time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've done that. I've done that for the last. Well, three World Cups now, so I'm used to it. But um, but it's it's fun all the same. Yeah, yeah. gotta love it, mate. Gotta love it. I mean, uh, uh, so many great stories as well at this World Cup, uh, not least that of of Morocco. Uh, I mean, I I picked Croatia as my dark horse, and it, you know, if you sort of really follow football, it wasn't that much of a big big call, given they were finalists last time around. But Morocco totally did not see that coming. No, yeah, didn't see it coming at all. Uh, what a great story. It's, it's unbelievable. First first African team into a semi-final, first Arabic uh, nation as well from the Arab world into a semi-final of a World Cup. Um, Africa don't have many have many um, uh, previous teams that have made a quarter-final, let alone a semi-final. Mm. Morocco were just the fourth in, in, in the history of the World Cup. So, um, yeah, I mean, Morocco have always been a, a team who, I guess you sort of, you look around world football and you always see some Moroccan players here and there playing for good good clubs. And you look at this Moroccan squad now, and you go, "Oh, gee, that's actually a pretty good list that they've got." All the all the most players in that team play in high level uh, leagues around Europe, but you never really expect them as a team, like as a, as a full unit, for it to come together. And and maybe rightly so as well, because some of their recent results haven't been great. Hadn't made it out of a group at the World Cup in almost or thirty to forty years. Their recent Afcon record hasn't been superb either. So on on the evidence of just their major tournaments. Over the last, you know, ten to twenty years, you'd you'd be forgiven, you'd be, you know, right in thinking that, um, you know, maybe not predicting them for for a deep run, but they've put it all together. They've got a great coach as well, who's who's come in late in the piece, but he's unified a squad that was a bit fractured under the previous coach, and um, and they've just they've they've grinded out results because they are based on defence, but the results haven't been, and the wins haven't been ugly. They've they've been good. It's been good to watch them play mm. the way that they do. So it's been uh, it's been an enjoy enjoyable um, experience, obviously for Moroccans, but even for us neutrals too. Yeah, totally. And I, I guess the th- another thing is, you know, so many World Cups we've seen, um, and the African nations turn up, and their coaches are always French or Slavic or something. But now we're seeing, you know, uh, with Senegal and with Morocco, it's it, it's local coaches. So it looks like maybe that, that development of the coaching expertise is coming along now and they don't have to go and spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars uh, on offshore coaches because they're breeding their own. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and 
Waleed Regragi, the, the coach of Morocco, has done most of his coaching in Morocco. I think he might have coached a bit here and there in, in the Middle East, but most of his um, most of his coaching experience has been in Morocco. So it's not as if he's gone out, even though he is Moroccan, it's not as if he's gone to Europe to coach in Europe or to South America or whatever. His, his whole coaching career has been in Morocco, which is excellent. And it, it does prove as well that... Um, most of the time, having a coach from your own nation coaching the national team works more often than not. A lot of the teams who have made the, the final eight, and I think even most of the teams in the round of 16, all had coaches from their own nation. I think there was only, I think out of the 32 teams at this World Cup, I think there was only seven countries that had that had foreign ma- managers. So it um, just goes to show that, that bringing through your own uh, coaching talents and and being able to enforce that uh, that national identity onto your own national team is is a, is a winner for World Cups. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and great to see. Uh, really is good to see. What about uh, their opponents, the French? Uh, I mean, they got over England, but they're not at their best, I don't think. I mean, I don't think anybody would have thought that Adrian Rabiot would have been a first-choice French midfielder at this World Cup, but no Kante, no Pogba. Um, they're also, you know, missing a few others as well, including, you know, Benzema and Nkuku, who would have given them depth up front. So it's not the best team that the French could have had, but it seems to be good enough at the moment. Do you think they'll have too much for Morocco? Um yeah, on the evidence of the England game, the England game was funny because it wasn't a... It was a good battle, but England probably in general play, especially in the first half, were probably the better team. But the French just took their moments. And that game was... I heard it described, and I'll echo these thoughts, were it was just described as a, a game of moments. It wasn't really a flowing football match. Um, it was just who took... Who took their opportunities better than the other, and that was ended up being France. That game probably wasn't the best representation of, of France and how well they played, particularly because England did pretty well in, in defence. I thought, um, and a lot of what happens with that French team is is you know Kylian Mbappe is the epicentre of of that team, and he was completely blanketed in the match. So that'll be something that Morocco looks at as uh, as clearly a strategy for them heading in. But I think France have been, other than that, I think France have been fine. Um, I mean, the game against Poland was pretty easy in the round of 16. The group games were, you know, they got the job done. Um, the Australia game turned out to be pretty easy in the end for them scoring four goals. But um, I have been impressed, though, just with how well this team has been managed, firstly, by Didier Deschamps. And I think a lot of criticism of him coming into this tournament um, might have been maybe a little bit warranted hitting in just the way he's he's set up his teams, but he's actually gone with a more attacking style of football than what we had been used to in the lead up to the World Cup. So in that sense, it's been more enjoyable to watch. It's allowed those attacking weapons of France to get off uh, off the leash and, and do their thing. Um, and as far as the team itself goes with all the injuries, the starting 11 is, is clearly good enough. I don't know about the depth though. I mean, I do look at that bench and I think... Okay, who have they got to come on in the second half if they need a game changer? And it almost didn't happen for them in the previous game. And it might have been, had England scored that goal with Harry Kane, it might have been uh, a bit a bit thin for them if it had gone to extra time. Because they only made one sub in that last game. It was Kingsley Coman, who's maybe the only high-quality depth player they've got. So mm. with all those injuries, the starting eleven is still fine, but it's that second layer of depth beneath that when if they do need a change in the second half, that might be what, what gets them. And Morocco... 
have shown that they can outlast a lot of teams. They've, they defend all the way to the end, so that'll be a, a point of interest if the game is really close by the end of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I mean, the only thing that would worry me if I was the Moroccans is that both Dembele and Mbappe had quite quiet games against England. Yeah, they did. Um, Dembele, Dembele hasn't really impressed me too much this tournament. I feel, I feel like he's got pace, and that will, um, that'll. That'll be just in its in itself an element of, uh, of you know uh, an element that the defence of Morocco will need to keep an eye on, particularly as they like to defend deep. So if they got Morocco, uh, if they got Dembélé running at them, they'll have to be wary of that. But um, um, yeah, Dembélé Dembélé has been uh, has been okay, but Mbappe is the main one. So I noticed in the previous game, uh, Morocco. Um, Against against Portugal, they they like to get their their wingers back. So they do defend pretty deep as well, so they'll sit back. But not only just their defence, it's their wingers who come back. So they'll have a lot of support on those on those flanks to try and quell Dembélé and Mbappe, and that's and that's going to be a, a key, obviously. And, and as I said before, Morocco will try and do what England did with getting sort of two or three players across that left flank of France to to try and blanket. Uh, Mbappe, um, but it's also it's not just them; it's also Griezmann. I think Antoine Griezmann has been one of the best players of the tournament. So that's just how multifaceted they are, the French, with with both flankers and then uh, Griezmann, who just marshals that whole midfield area and has been basically running the game for France. Mbappe has been the obviously the flashy player who scores the great goals and they can go on those those long sprints. But I think Mbappe has been the the, the core of that French team. So I think that's going to be as important for Morocco to be mindful of. Yeah, and I think that French strength is a weakness as well, right? Because that left-hand side uh, with Mbappe, uh, sorry, that right-hand side with Mbappe and, and Teo Hernandez bombing forward, they, they do tend to to leave themselves a little bit open at the back on that side. And so, I mean, if you're, if you're uh, Ziyech, you know, that's probably a place you might want to float to. Correct. Yeah, absolutely correct, for sure. Yeah, and they... And they've, they they can counter really well. Some of their some of their counter attacking moves with those wingers, uh, Morocco's wingers that is, have been have been pretty sharp and look pretty dangerous. And that's how they've um, that's how they've been able to trouble teams. So I think I think that's spot on. Yeah, Hernandez gets up. He's a good attacking fullback, Hernandez. But um, getting back in defence, yeah, if, if if he can't get there, and, and Ziyech has speed as well and good control. And even those midfielders too. I was really impressed with. Um, with Azadine Unahi in the centre of midfield, who's one of the maybe one of the, the lesser known names of, of Morocco, but I think his role in that team, supporting Ziyech near that right side, has been just as important, and he carries the ball forward well as well. So that'll be that'll be one of the strength points. So if you're looking for for those who are watching the semi final, not just um, you know watching Morocco's defence, you want to see what they can offer in attack. That is definitely one of the areas for Morocco. Yeah, definitely one uh, to, to look at. We should look at tomorrow, mate. I've I've already jumped on this to be a draw at ninety minutes at the tab, um, which is still paying three twenty. Um, you reckon that's about on the money? Probably, yeah. The way things are going with Croatia, absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I think this game is going to be. I feel like this game is going to be almost similar to the Croatia-Brazil game where it was very methodical. It was um, it was a sort of a slower tempo game, but not a boring slow tempo game. It was very uh, intriguing in its tactical battle. There was there was some you could see clear tactical moves being made by by both coaches in that previous game, and I think Croatia-Argentina is going to be the same. Argentina aren't uh, necessarily a run and gun team apart from their wing backs who, who do provide a lot of speed. Um, but when it's in in the central areas, they're not 
always looking to pick their way through and go quickly. They'll they'll slow it down. They'll try and find the right pass. They'll be very precise. And Croatia can be the same as well. So I think I think this will be another really fascinating tactical battle. And I think it's it's going to be one for the football purists. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, for all the talk about Messi, um, a guy who has been really important for Argentina at this World Cup uh, is going to be missing. Um, and um, that is Acuna. He, he is suspended for this game because he's he really has been the engine room. And when you're going up against Kovacic, Brozovic and Modric in that Croatian midfield, you need somebody who's got legs to be able to do the running for the likes of Messi and, and Galdi Maria if he comes back into the team. Absolutely, yeah. He's been uh, he's a mixed bag, Acuna. He's he, he attacks a lot on those on those left sides. He can be um, some of his end products can be a little sloppy at times, but nonetheless, his his absence is going to be is going to be massive for them. I don't know. Nicholas Tagliafico is is the 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 backup at left wing back. I don't know how aggressive he is in comparison to Acuna, um, but he'll have to try and replicate what Acuna has done. Um, and we've also been, that means we've been denied, I think, what would have been a great battle between Acuna on the left and on, on the right side of Croatia, um, Josip Juranovic, who has been an absolute energizer bunny for Croatia. And they've, both of those players, Acuna versus Juranovic, would have been bombing up and down the flanks. Juranovic will still be doing that for Croatia, but um, now it's going to be Tagliafico who takes over that role. So I agree, yeah, Acuna has been, um, has been huge for them. So I wonder if they'll go more right-sided heavy now Argentina with what we saw from Nabil Molina, the right wing back, having scored that goal, but also getting up high and wide on the right flank. I wonder if they'll use that side maybe as a um, as, as a more, they'll lean on that side of the field more so in, in their game. All right, if I uh, put the metaphorical gun to the head, mate, who's in the final? Um, uh, I want to say, I want to say Argentina and France. I think that's obviously uh, probably goes down as the more logical decision. Oh, actually, no, I'll say Argentina and Croatia are the 50-50 semifinals, so maybe that one's not as logical. But I think France in the final and, and Argentina... Brazil is my tip to win the tournament, but Argentina is the one I want to win, so I want to see an Argentina-France final. Yeah, all right, mate. Uh, well, you're not, you, you weren't alone there. I've been tipping Brazil all tournament as well, so there you go. Um, <laughs> now, we should talk a little bit of A-League before I let you go, mate, because, of course, uh, the ALP yesterday announced that they've done a three-year deal with New South Wales, uh, eight-figure sum uh, to host three grand finals um, at uh, in Sydney. Um, it has drawn a lot of ire, not just from the fans, uh, but also from players. I know see Craig Good has been saying things. Former players, uh, Michael Maroney's been uh, Michael Maroney's been saying things. Ex Adelaide player. A lot of the press are, are on this as well. Not not uh, happy about it. What have you made of it? Yeah, um, my my initial thought was um, so I, I under I fully understand uh, the, um, the the frustration from fans that this is not a, a decision that's been made for fans when. The, the APL and the A leagues and, and all the the admin now that since it's been since the league has been um, separated from the actual federation they said that they wanted to make all decisions for football fans and make football based decisions that help the game um, and I completely understand the frustration and I, and I share the frustration as well from football fans about well this isn't a uh, this isn't really a decision made for football fans really I mean it's it's not like the model is is akin to the AFL and the NRL here, where the AFL Grand Final is held at the MCG and the NRL Grand Final is held at Stadium Australia in Sydney. But that that can happen. That's it's a lot easier for those sports to do that because the heart 
and, and the real sort of foundation of those sports are in Melbourne and Sydney, respectively. So to have the grand final in those cities for AFL and NRL makes sense. But football is a national code. There's no heartland in any city necessarily. It's spread evenly across the country. So it doesn't make sense from that point of view. Um, uh, but my, my first thought when I, when I saw it was money straight away. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was obviously why the decision was made. But I can also fully sympathise with, with uh, the A-League for wanting to make that or wanting to get that deal through because the A-League isn't funded all that well. The, the money is a bit tight. Um, in, off the back of all the World Cup success from the Socceroos, a lot was made of how little the game is being funded from a government level. Um, so the fact that the soccer is made the round of 16 was a bonus financially because you get extra prize, prize money for making for making it that far in a World Cup. And so that was a huge relief for football in Australia to be able to get some of that extra money from the World Cup success. And then this on top of it now, that, that eight-figure deal for the for the grand final is another, um, another way for the A-League to secure more money because currently they just... It's, they're burning through the cash at the moment and there's not enough coming their way from, from elsewhere. So from that perspective, I completely understand why they've done it, but I also understand from the fans' point of view um, what their, how their frustration is, is being justified. So it's just, a, I think overall, it's just a, just a bit of a crap situation for, for both the fans and also the code who just needs the money. Yeah, and the thing is, if Danny Townsend had just come out and said that and said, look, you know, we've just been through three years of COVID, we've had disruptions, et cetera, et cetera, we need the money. We're doing this as a, you know, to financially stabilise the league. I think everybody would have gone, well, we don't mm. like it, but we understand it. But to try and sell us that he's doing it for the good of football is uh, something, no. you know, that people can see the BS. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the way that the A League handled it, with the, from a PR perspective, was was yeah horrendous. The way that exactly the way that he tried to spin it, um, the way that he tried to say, "Oh, we want to create a create a tradition now in the code." I mean, this is not a tradition that fans asked for. Traditions happen naturally. You can't force traditions. So clearly, that was as you said, that was yeah pretty BS as well. So I, I don't think they handled it well at all from from every different angle that they. Uh, that they that they attempted to, um, yeah, I think I think fans probably would have respected him more if he was just upfront about it because football fans know, you know, the the, the clued in football fans in this in this part of the world, both in Australia and New Zealand, know the situation of of the code here in the, in this part. So, I think they would have been a lot more they would have been understanding, not not happy, but they would have been a lot more understanding had he just come out and said it straight. Yeah, hundred percent, mate, hundred percent. Hey, and before we let you go, uh, it's also come out Ray Gatt saying, uh, who's a celebrated Australian football journalist, uh, recently retired, saying he's hearing that the two cities that the A League are looking to expand into next are Canberra and Auckland. Yes, I only saw this uh, this late yesterday, but um, I haven't had, I haven't got my my head around it uh, too much yet. But I am. Um, I think the Canberra expansion has been talked about for a while in Australia, so I, I like that. There's already a, a, an A-League women's team there, and that's been established for quite some time now. So I think a team in Canberra um, would be... Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. Expansion is such a tricky topic in Australia because, we, you know, you expand... Um, you expand, you know, get a new expansion team in, but the fan base doesn't arrive... Uh, obviously, very quickly, unless it's in Melbourne or Sydney, like Western Sydney Wanderers. So to, to build that fan base up um, is is obviously going to take some time. And and Canberra is not a huge city; it's uh, it's, a, it's a small city with a small population, and it's really 
there mainly for sort of just a, a political and administrative um, sense. So, but having said that, there is also a football history in Canberra as well. There's been Socceroos who have come out of Canberra. So maybe it can work. I'm uh, I'm I'm fifty fifty on that one. And Auckland, well, I guess. Um, I guess well, I don't know. I might defer this back to you, Ricardo. Is is Auckland? Uh, is that a? Is does that look like a good move for New Zealand football? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, if you look uh, from what I understand, uh, Auckland City FC are behind this. Um, uh, certainly, they've they've been sounding this out for some time, and uh, they're very professionally run. They've got uh, good backers uh, financially. They're very very sound. They've made. I think five Club World Cups in the last uh, few years. Finished third at one of those. Uh, they have a pathway. They have lots of good links to Europe. So uh, I think they're probably best set up and, and probably a lot better than in terms of financial setup than what we had people running the Kings in the old NSL and the, and the football nights as it was at the start of, yeah. uh, start of the A-League. Would it be, should it be a case of Auckland City getting... Uh, a license directly to the A League, or would it? Do you think it would be a new franchise? Because that's—I I would love to see existing teams just get elevated and, and get the get the the boost um, financially from the leagues, get a bit of funding to help sort of elevate from being semi-professional to professional. So would it be would it be better if it was Auckland City who goes straight up? a level or would it be a new franchise? Uh, I think it would probably be better if that was the case. Although, having said that, I would imagine what will happen is that uh, it will be Auckland City with a new name. Okay, right. Yeah. And yep. then what, Auckland City remains in the New Zealand League as a feeder team? Yeah, basically. That's how I'd see yep, it running. Yep, yep. That's how I'd see it running. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good yeah. stuff, Jordan. All right, mate. Hey, listen, I know you've got a, a bed calling you, and I know you've got a lot of work to do. So, <laughs> mate, really appreciate your time. Go well, mate, and look forward to hearing your call tomorrow morning from 8. No, thank you very much, Ricardo. Appreciate it. Anytime. Cheers. Uh, Jordan Cornelis there, SEN football commentator, with us talking World Cup football and the A-League as well.